so we can live out that life, that, that incredible life that you've given us to show who you are and what you've come here to do. Lord, thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Amen. And like I said, if you guys need it, uh, the notes and everything's back there. You already have pens on the tables. There's Bibles there. Um, you guys can give me some feedback at the end. Uh, I did scripture references on the screen a little different than uh, Jared normally does. I did it kind of the lazy way. I just went like passage by passage of what I'm preaching on in the moment. Um, hopefully it's big enough. Ooh. All right. I just didn't want to see the keyboard go, or her. Um, but if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in 1 Samuel today because we are preaching on David and Goliath. Um, redeemed myself because, again, last week when I was talking with some of us, I said uh, Daniel and Goliath, and then I threw myself off. So, but before we dive into that, how many of you guys knew the last song? How many of you guys knew the last song? Oh, thank goodness. All right. We'll, we'll keep all you guys, the other ones who didn't raise your hands, we'll get you back up to speed. Um, when, when we're, yeah, we'll, we'll pray for you guys. But, um, no. Uh, here's the thing, though, and this is something I'm, I don't normally do, and maybe it's just because I haven't developed the skill yet or just the wherewithal yet, but normally I prep within the week. Uh, so like Monday, Tuesday, I prep, Wednesday I finish by tonight, and then I'm able to preach the message. I don't really work ever ahead, um, because with my ADHD, I like to capture like what's in the moment, and I like it to be there, and then I just like keep rehashing it in my mind. But with being gone, um, funny enough, Victor pointed out that I preached on Noah's Ark, and then I, you know, then went on a cruise shortly after. So thankfully, we made it through the waters, and we're back home safe, but... <laughs> Um, I love rereading notes that I wrote like a week prior, um, and because it still just rings so true, even with my heartbeat for it, and my, like I, I was telling some of us, my devotionals actually led up like yesterday, and my devos actually landed on David and Goliath. And again, the same heartbeat kept like just ringing into me, and I had this, I had this beat, and I was almost on this war path with this, with this story, because so many people have just taken it and ran with it and made it just so many weird things that I just, I, it, it hurts my heart to almost have to then try and preach it to you guys after all that you've probably encountered with it um, because I want to do it such justice. Um, and of course, when you go in kind of bullheaded into wanting to present God's word to people, um, he redirects you and I did a complete 180 and now we're here tonight. Um, that was actually in here, by the way, the 180, I put that. So I'm, I've recapped it and it still ran true. Um, but it's accounts like tonight that, like I said, you can get so bullheaded and almost angry with because a lot of the times, especially in the Western church here in America, we've taken these amazing accounts, right? We've talked about how a lot of these are true history. Like the flood is historical. David and Goliath is historical. At creation was history. It wasn't allegory or just this random story that we needed a beginning to the Bible. So we, Moses just chucked it together and made it sound really cool. Like there's, there's truth and fruit and, and just passion behind this. So the one thing that I want to focus on tonight is that faith is powerful and faith is amazing when it's understood in the right context, right? And, and the, what is the right context, you might ask. And so what I did is I kind of took my mental picture of what I've heard preached about David and Goliath so often in TikTok excerpts, on Instagram, on Facebook videos, from big mega churches, and, and I came up with this kind of small summary well, often we can read the Bible and think that we are the main characters of these stories, right? Which we established with the first one in Adam and Eve that we're not. 
But when we read these stories, we almost feel the call to be like the main character. And so obviously, we need to simply be like them and we will live a faithful and fruitful life. If we're just like so-and-so, I will be in God's will. That's, that's kind of the heartbeat that we gather. And so if we take David and Goliath, and we're going to break this down here in just a few minutes, but, but if we read it in this context that a lot of people are saying that you're the main character, live like them, well then Goliath becomes our daily giant problems that just seem too big to overcome. Goliath is that hard boss. Goliath is that just routine sin that you keep falling into. Goliath is that nagging coworker. Goliath is just that bill that you don't know if you're going to be able to pay. That is Goliath in our, in our current church's culture. So obviously, if Goliath is our problems, then you and I must be who? We're David, right? We get told we're David, And I'm putting this out there now. I'm not the first one to say some of the things that I'm going to say in here tonight, so I can't get plagiarized and hit with that. But a lot of good, faithful preachers are about to say some stuff, and I've actually quoted two of them them tonight. But, But this is kind of where it tracks. If our problems are Goliath, and if we're just simply David, then if we just have this really great faith and proclaim things and just, not even based on lines of Scripture, but just in our hearts we say, God, this well, then we can sling those stones of faith and knock over our Goliaths, right? You just have to have that strong enough swing, that great enough slingshot to knock out your problems. That's the logical conclusion when we get to this type of reading of the Bible. And it's like that story I shared that I couldn't take credit for. Pastor Jeff shares it all the time. Like, wow, you must have, you know, really great faith in your wife. No, I have a really great wife to know that when she's out of town, she's not cheating on me and actually doing what she says she's going to do. That's the heartbeat of that whole story, saying, I have a great wife. We have a faith in a great God, right? And that's, that's kind of what we're gonna dissect today, but I have to give this one quote, and it's by a beautiful man, R.I.P., R.C. Sproul's. Um, and I wish I had a, and I wish it was this deep theological quote. And I, for me, it is. But this is his quote: For people who think this way, if Goliath is your problems and you are David and you sling your stones of faith, what's wrong with you people? That is probably one of his most famous quotes. And I've been dying to put it into a sermon, so I'm glad I could do it. But when I hear preaching like this, it makes me want to just shake them and go, "What's wrong with you? What is wrong?" with society and church today that everything has to be us-centered. Why am I the hero? I'm not told I'm the hero when I read scripture. So why put that into scripture? Why put that into a story that is so beautiful and depicts Christ so greatly and we strip it of all of that when we make ourselves David and our problems Goliath? So you say, you say, Mitch, what, what in the world? What's the real context then? What would be the right context to read this type of story? And I've already quoted this guy before, but Charles Spurgeon. He says it this way. Let this be to you the mark of true gospel preaching. Where Christ is everything, the creature is nothing. Where, salvation, uh, where it is salvation, all of grace, through the work of the Holy Spirit, applying it to the soul, the precious blood of of Jesus. See, the one side wants to give us the you-centered reality of the Bible. The biblical way wants to give you the Christ-centered way. 
of reading scripture, where Jesus is everything. We are nothing. We are saved by grace and not works. And it is in, th- it is in and through the blood of Jesus. Not the stones that you're slinging. Not the Maserati, Maserati that you manifest in your mind every day. The name it and claim it mentality of this world. It is in the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the right context. And so you say, should we not read David and Goliath about faith then? No, we should. We should read David and Goliath in the list of faith, but in the right way. And that's how I want to bring us into this story tonight. That's my heartbeat. It was at that last week when I was preparing that message. It was that during this whole week of being gone and just reflecting on my own walk with Christ, reading some amazing books and, and being able to just dive in deeper to certain areas. But but for some of us, we may not even know who David is. And so the first passage is 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you, if you uh, want to have your Bibles out, 1 Samuel 16, verses 18 and 19 say this. It says, One of the young men answered, I have seen the son of Jesse of Bethlehem, who, now, uh, who knows how to play the lyre. He is also a valiant man, a warrior, eloquent, handsome, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul dispatched the messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David, who is with the sheep. See, right before this, Saul just kept messing up as king. He kept messing up, kept doing things on his own terms. He was God's originally, the anointed one, the kings were the anointed ones over Israel, and Saul just kept screwing it up. And so God removed that anointing to the fact where Saul was in distraught. And the only thing that would bring him peace would be the playing of a lyre. And so that he said, go find somebody. And, and who would have guessed it that this little shepherd boy of Jesse was going to be that lyre player? And you see, David was a son of Jesse, which is important also if you read the genealogies of Jesus and of Abraham and all these people. You see Jesse in there. But most of us in, the, in our churches today and, and on social media today and in our own lives, we would have stopped with the whole list before it got to the Lord was with him. We would have said, we want that charismatic preacher. We want that preacher with preachers and sneakers is always talking about them, right? We want that guy in the nice suit with fancy words, doesn't say that he can't speak English, right? We want that guy. We want the guy who's eloquent, holds himself without slouching like I do, right? We, that's who we want to represent the Christian church, That's the heartbeat of where we're at today. And yet we read in 1 Samuel 16, 7, just a little bit before this, when Samuel's going to anoint one of Jesse's sons, he has like eight of them, and they run through the whole list, and, and Samuel's kind of like, Come, what, what was wrong with all these people? And, and God says that beautiful line of, I do not look at the exterior like men, but I look at the heart. And so where all of us would focus on the valiant man, a warrior, eloquent, handsome. I mean, I wouldn't focus on the last part there. Some of us would. But it says, and the Lord is with him. That is who we are to seek after. That is setting the foundation of who David is. And it's very important to also see again, we saw like with Moses, right? Where was Moses when Moses got called? He was shepherding a flock. Where is David in the beginning of our story? Tending to his father's sheep. I'm not saying this is a giant theme yet. I haven't looked that far into it, but it's kind of cool and noticeable to know that Moses and now David were shepherds. 
as their call was brought to them. So now that's David. He's the son of Jesse. He's a shepherd. He plays the lyre for King Saul. And now we get into the narrative, the heartbeat of our story tonight after we kind of set the stage for for David. I want us to kind of remember that Lord is with him part. So 1 Samuel chapter 17, starting in verse 3. This is where we get to, this is like climactic scene, right? The Philistines were standing on one hill, and the Israelites were standing on another hill with a ravine between them. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall. Some of your Bibles might have the original measurements. This is the English equivalent. So um, it's easier than saying like cubics and all these things. Um, Tall and wore a bronze helmet, a bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was bronze armor on his shins and a bronze javelin was slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a, weaving beam, a weaver's beam and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. This is Goliath. This is a literal person in history. Not an allegory for your disobedient cat or your child or just that really angry coworker that you have. This is Goliath from Gath. And so we continue down, verse 8. We see, he stood and shouted to the Israelite battle formation. Because back then, what they did is the armies would meet up, kind of where they did, kind of with like that ravine or kind of like a middle pass. And it was accustomed to back then that they would send a champion out, and that champion represented the army. Now we just send everything and say, go. Back then, we picked the champion and they went. Goliath was obviously their champion. I'd hate to be that shield bearer. Because you're probably like at his waist, like, yeah, we're going to battle. <laughs> like, you better have a lot of faith in that, dude. But but that's so that's that picture we now see is they're in this 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 mountain ranges and that in the middle ground is where, where this whole climactic scene is taking place. And so he says, Why do you come up to line up in the battle formation? He asked, Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, he will be, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. In verse 10, then the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so that we can fight each other. You see, this is why we need to be so careful with how we talk about faith and God when it comes to living life and asking for things. When it comes to these, having these great, these great stones of faith and these allegorical views on certain things. This is why we need to be so careful about just like, oh, just have faith. Or just trust God on little cliche notions. This is why we need to be so careful. And why do I say that? Because the Philistines had their own view of God. They had their own view of faith. They had very much pagan ways about religion. See, to, to Goliath, he did have faith. It was just in himself. And his God was not the God of Israel. His God was either a pagan God or his God truly was himself. He was very confident, right? Was he not? Why do you line up as a battle formation against me? Send me one man. You see, that's the world today. You are God. Just believe in yourself. Just follow your heart. Can you imagine Goliath standing there with a shirt that just says that? 
That was pretty much his slogan. He's following his heart. He's following his upbringing. He's following the religion that was given to him and that he clung to, which was the glory of self. We saw that with Nimrod. We saw that with the people who built the tower, right? God wants us to scatter and, and, and subdue the earth, and yet let's stay here and build a city and a tower before God can see a thing. Nothing new under the sun. And see, we do this with God a lot of the times too. We almost create a picture of this God above who, who is just almost in anxiety waiting for you to just ask, ask in the greatest faith possible with all this confidence so that he can just grant your inner wishes. Like God is, God is cowarding just waiting for you. Like he's almost inept and unable to do anything unless you ask. That's the picture we truly paint when we look at Scripture with a you-centered view. That we have these marionette strings on God. And if we just tug that string right, we get exactly what we want. That is the view that Goliath had in life. And that's why, again, I'm passionate when I was writing it, passionate now and passionate forever. We must get faith right. We must understand faith and God correctly if we are ever going to live a life that he calls us to. And this is verse 11. I like the way it just ends. When Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. These were people who have seen God do so much already. These are people who were literally were brought through the waters of the Red Sea on dry land, were brought safely through. These were people who were scattered and understood that it was only in God that they could have community and unity. These were people who saw that their, their ancestors were brought through the flood by grace alone. These people understood who God was, but just like we talked about with Moses in the Red Sea, they looked all around. Where were they failing to look to? They were failing to look up. Saul, beaten down, broken, pretty much removed from power at this point, was the same way. See, Saul and all of Israel heard these words, and what they do? They lost courage, and they became terrified. So instead of remembering the reality of the Red Sea and where, where they were told and forced to look upwards, they looked at themselves, and they looked at Goliath, and they lost hope because they were looking for strictly the experience. And if they only based things on the experience and the past experiences... They never truly grasp who God is, just what he was able to do for them. And so when it's not happening for them in the moment, what do you do? You lose hope. Because their hope was based in what God was doing and had done, not in who God simply was. So we go to verse 31. 
a little bit of context in between just to kind of help push it forward. But pretty much David then was brought up from his dad to go bring his brothers who were in the front lines, cheese and burnt grains and all these things to kind of bring them. And he's hearing Goliath defy God, to defy God's people. He's, he's hearing this Philistine just ransack them and belittle them. And not only just them, but God. And so David's like, what's going to be done? And of course, when you see a scrappy kid running around with cheese and grains, word travels pretty fast. He's like, you're not even part of the army. What? Like, why are you questioning us? And that's where it brings us into 31. When David, what David said was overheard and reported to Saul. So when, so he had David brought to him and David said to Saul, do not let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go and fight the Philistine. But Saul replied, you cannot go and fight this Philistine. You are just a youth. And he, will, he has been a warrior since he was young. You see, this is what I love about this context and the story that I think gets lost so often. Is David was assured of who God was. He saw no answers, so what did he do? He looked up. And we see that played out here in the next few verses. But there's something about great faith, right? And, and, it not, and not great faith, sorry, and genuine faith. That's the G I want us to hold to with our faith. Not great, but genuine. And the thing with genuine faith is it will expose a lack of faith around us in those types of situations. And we have two options when that happens, right? When we see someone standing up in great faith, we see someone speaking up, reaching out, defending. There's two options for us to have. Most of us would get defensive and discouraged by the other person's faith. Oh, well, that's because they're at church every time the doors are open. I have a job, right? We get defensive. We almost get beat down. We almost, we almost want them to fail. Like Saul even said, you are a, you're, you're a child. He's been killing people since he's a child. You can't do it. So we see ultimately Saul is taking that first option. Saul is, is looking at David who's like, what? Like he's defying God. He's defying God's people. Like we're literally going to do nothing? We're not even going to find someone in the crowd? Like I would rather go on the premise of who God is than no one at all. And you say, Mitch, where do you even see that? And I say, we continue down through the story, but we have to see where David and Saul are at. David is having genuine faith. Saul is being exposed to the lack of his. And so what does he do? He discourages David. And this is where I love verse 34, where it picks up, 34 through 37. It says, David answered Saul, your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it struck it down, recovered the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, The Lord who rescued me from the paws of the lion and the paws of the bear will rescue me from the hands of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go and may the Lord be with you. David has every reason 
to boast on his own accolades alone, right? He doesn't have to give God credit. He can say, I killed the bears. I killed the lions. I rescued the sheep. And right now you're not acting like a king, so I'm gonna not even say that I'm a servant. I don't deserve to be called that by you. But is that what we see here in this passage? No, first and foremost, we see that he stayed humble before Saul. He said, your servant. He knew his place in God's plan. He said, I am not king. I am but a shepherd who is a servant to King Saul to play a leer. But second, he acknowledged that it was in his genuine faith that he actively pursued the sheep. God had put him in place of shepherding those sheep. So what did he do? In active faith, he went and shepherded the sheep. He did. We acknowledge that. But it was in his trust of who God is that he was able to say, the Lord who rescued me from the paws of the lion and the paws of the bear. Do we see that humble confidence? First, he says, I would grab it by its fur and strike it down and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. And yet he understands who ultimately brought him the victory. He says, I was rescued. I was rescued by the Lord against these lions and bears. Because he wasn't putting his faith in the fact that he could kill them. He was putting his faith in the fact that God was able to rescue them. And that's why I love when we look back now at 31 through 33 where we see that genuine faith. It's because if God was faithful to Dan David, I was doing so good. If God was faithful to David when he was tending the sheep, which was a mediocre job. I mean, not mediocre, but to us, it kind of sounds like it, being a shepherd. It's kind of mediocre. But to them, it was still very structured, the family livelihood. But it was just a shepherd, right? It was a secular job. He was shepherding sheep. And if God was that faithful then, if it was now God's name being defied and belittled and broken, how much more would God rescue the one who went and stood for that? If God went and rescued him from saving a little lamb, David knew, why in the world would my God not rescue me when it's on his glory, when it's his name at stake? See, this is the power of standing on a faith that is based on who God is and not simply what he, we can get out of him when it's convenient. Because when we fail and life is inconsistent, God is consistent. That brings us to 40, verse 45. David said to the Philistine, he's now gone out. Saul, Saul's let him gone out. And he says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel you have defied. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I will strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God. And, that, and this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. Even at the battle line, even at the adrenaline, even at the, the height of fear for any of us going against a nine foot, nine inch tall dude covered in bronze. Even in that moment, 
David would not take glory for himself going, man, I'm the only one stepping up. And you know what? I'm not even going to do it with armor. He rejected Saul's armor. He rejected Saul's weapons. All he took was that sling and that staff that God had given him back in the sheep field. Because David was approaching the line, that battle line, that challenge line on God's glory. He was going at that to fight for God's glory, not his own like Goliath was. And I love that he says, like, God's not going to do it in an orthodox way. Like the Red Sea. It's not pretty orthodox to see the ocean just go. It's not orthodox to be called out of a burning bush that doesn't get consumed. It's not orthodox that you're building a tower one day and the next day you know French. Like God doesn't have to work in the lines that we think he does. And David was going to prove it. David was again going for the glory of God, right? And and I love that he doesn't say the God who, you know, he helped me fight lions and bears. It says, no, I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies. He came on a relationship was understanding who God truly was, not just what God had done for him. And that brings us to the closing. 48 through 51 says this. It says, when the Philistines started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. Bless you. David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, hit the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without having a sword. You see, this is the beauty of that balance that we've talked about before. David was active in his genuine faith, but knew that it was going to be God who was going to be bringing the victory. Right? It was going to be God who had it ultimately in control. It was for the name of the God of Israel. And I like how it ends right here, 51. David ran over and stood over him. He grabbed the Philistine's sword, pulled it from the sheath, and used it to kill him. And he cut off his head. And when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they fled. See, the reality is, is both sides of this army and this fight that we see lost. The Philistines lost, right? David's there with Goliath's head. Philistines lost. But could you imagine for one second being one of those Israelite soldiers? This shepherd boy with a sling yelling out for God's glory alone, almost like a little Martin Luther just running out there with a sling, took down this champion and not once thought less of himself, not once thought more of himself, just simply said, it isn't God and God alone. I'm going to go and defend who he is and who he says he is. Could you, do you feel like a victor in that moment? No, I'd be like, dang, we trained for this stuff. He heard sheep. If we're all honest, that's what we would feel like, right? And I think we feel a lot of that way sometimes when we see a friend go, okay, can we just praise together? Like, I just had a conversation with my friend and like they, they surrendered their life to Christ. If you're truly honest with yourself, you might go like, yeah, like let's pray in the moment and afterwards you're gonna be like, whatever. 
you know, I, I could do that too, maybe. Right? It's not a genuine happiness and joy of what took place for God's name. It's this, well, why, what am I doing? We instantly bring it back to ourselves. You see, David in genuine faith was successful because instead of believing God for the sake of experience, he trusted in the fact that God was enough. He said, God, in everything that he has promised, everything that he has spoken, and it's literally just for the namesake of God alone, for his glory alone, I'm going to go stand up against this guy. And this is where we're going to end tonight, and I want to tie this in to the reality of how we truly, truly should read this story and how we should envision the roles that are in this narrative if we want to make them roles, right? But I want to bring you to this verse, Romans 8, 3 through 4. For what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, Jesus came and gave his life so that sinners may find theirs. Jesus went, paid the price, so that we as humanity could understand and see truly, once again, the glory of who God is. That we no longer walk by our flesh, which is failing and sinful, but by the Spirit. And then Romans 8, 37 through 39 says this. It says, Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, not powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You want to know who David represents? Christ. David is a picture of Christ. Who do you think we are in the story? We're the army of Israel. We're the ones that are incapable, quivering in our whatever chain mail that we have, going, I can't do this. That's who we are in the story. That's who we are in the Bible. Because according to the flesh, nothing can happen good. Nothing can be succeeded. Nothing can be done to reconcile ourselves in the flesh. But when we are in the spirit, by what? By the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is why it's so important that we read these stories in the proper light. Because I could have easily get, man, and I, I think I'm just too angry against that style of preaching that I'd ever do it. But the thought of coming in here tonight and giving you a message where you could leave here going, you know what? I just got to polish up my rocks. Got to make sure my sling's all nice and steady. You could have left here with the best moralistic preaching and 10 steps to being a, a David. And you would have, you would have, gotten that camp high for maybe a night. And I would have left here with you guys going, that's so challenging, that's so good. I got all 10 listed. 
but that would be a complete disservice to all of you. Because that's not what this is about. What this is about is that we are incapable of saving ourselves. We are incapable of getting the victory. And so by God and God's grace alone, that he sends us a victor. That he sends us an unlikely savior to then die on a cross, conquer sin, death, and hell, and then ascend to sit at the right hand of the Father to say, if you confess with your mouth that I am Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him three days later, you will be saved. Why? Because as Daniel, oh gosh, David, because as David secured the victory for Israel that day, it's Christ who now makes us conquerors. It's now Christ who makes you a victor. It's now Christ where you can wake up to a dark, gloomy day and say, I have no clue. And yet I can stand firm knowing that Christ has the victory. That is why I love Romans 8, 37 and 39 so much that Paul would make a list. He makes a pretty good list. And then at the end of it, he says, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Paul says, you know what? Here's a list. Better yet, literally nothing If you are in Christ Jesus, literally nothing can separate you from God's love anymore. That victory has been secured by the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. That is the beauty of the story of David and Goliath. But there is an applicable thing. Not that I should sling stones or or knock down my Goliaths, but it's be genuine. Be genuine in the faith that you have. Faith of a mustard seed can move mountains. Right? Be, when we're genuine, it doesn't matter what anyone else is doing. It just means that I'm so in love with Christ Jesus and what he did for me that I can't help but champion anyone who's stepping out in faith or picking myself up and saying, you know what? Today sucks, but I have Christ. I don't know what this diagnosis will bring, but I have Christ. I don't know where this job will lead, but I have Christ today. I don't know what school's going to look like, but I have Christ today. Until Jesus Christ becomes enough for you in the moment, you will never find fulfillment in anything else. And that's why I love this so much. Is the last verse I want to hit with you guys tonight is 2 Corinthians uh, 5.21. Or 2 Colossians. No, 2 Corinthians. Yeah, sorry. The abbreviation threw me off. But this is, this is the verse. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus did the work. He fought the fight against sin and death. He conquered, and then he makes us conquerors because of him. His righteousness is now imputed onto me. See, right now, outside of Jesus, you are an enemy of God. Plain and simple. I don't care what gender you are, what skin tone you are. None of that is a deciding factor. The only deciding factor is, are you in Christ or are you not? When you're not, you are an enemy of God. 
But Christ comes and by taking the cross and the grave and rising victoriously, he now holds the keys to Hades and the power over death. Either we live a life consistently at arms with Christ in our sin or we surrender and get brought into and born again into Jesus and his righteousness. And these are the two doctrines I want to leave you with tonight from this story. Again, they're on those sheets back there and at the end of the series, we'll put them into a little book for you. But first, it's the doctrine, and I said this word already, of imputed righteousness. You say, Mitch, what in the world? Let me explain. This is the righteousness that outside of Jesus, we are dead in our sins And we are unholy, we are unrighteous, and we are completely separated from God's presence. Yet, when you repent and believe into Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, we are now given the righteousness of Christ. Instant, you are now justified. The moment you are born again, you are now justified in the eyes of God. That's imputed righteousness, right? It says in that verse, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God of God. When you are born again, you now have a correct standing. You are on God's side. Right? David knew God. David had a relationship with God. That was his foundation. And that leads us into the second doctrine, which is of imparted righteousness. This is the premise that once we are justified, Now God is working through the Holy Spirit to sanctify us. You should know that word by heartbeat now. Sanctification between justification and you dying and getting to be with the Lord is those awkward teen years in the middle. This is the daily living righteousness that now is a fruit of being justified or being given to us by Jesus at salvation. Where once we would do good for our own sake, our own selfish desires are based on a loose cultural moral. We saw that in all of 2020 and now here till. We now can live rightly with God in actual accordance with his commands out of love and not fear. Well, I do so much good. My good outweighs my bad. God's gonna, God loves me enough because I do enough good. I tithe enough. I go to church enough. I sling enough stones. I, I, I. But man, when we understand who Christ Jesus is, it becomes all about for God's glory alone. I woke up and I said, God, it's you, not me. I know you have me at this job for a season, and it sucks, but I have faith that you've had me here for a reason. There might be that one coworker who needs to see your faith. There might be that one, that one just angry customer who you handle with enough grace that they want to ask, why? That's the difference between living for Christ and living outside of Christ. And so these are the points I want to leave you with as we dive into our questions tonight. But number one is genuine faith is built on who Jesus is and not all things that we think we can get from him. We sung that song on our worship night, but it's I'm not here for the blessings. I'm here for you alone. We don't, if we are in a relationship with Jesus Christ based off what we can get from him and what he can do for us, you're going to tremble at every hardship in your life like these Israelite soldiers. But if you have a relationship with Jesus for who he is and for what he has done for us, 
and how that's all wrapped up in his being, you will then stand confidently in the weirdest and hardest times of your life. Genuine faith is built on who Jesus is and not all the things that we think we can get for him to do for us. Number two, genuine faith will stand when our emotions and experience fail us. See, this is where I go again back to the camp analogy. Kids go to camp, they're like, oh, I'm sad and lonely. Jesus will give me friends. And then we get those friends, and we text for about a month, and then they stop texting you because they're like, ah, they're fire fanned out too, and they're like, this stuff's stupid. I want to go back to sinning and all the fun stuff that I actually really like. There's no emotionalism just beating them down. Right? Because then as soon as the first hard thing happens, what? I didn't feel this way when I gave my life to Christ. Why do I feel this way now? Why doesn't he make me feel happy? Why doesn't he make me feel all these things? That's what he's supposed to do. This is something I told the high schoolers in chapel the other week. God does want you to obviously be happy, but that happiness must be rooted in the fact that he first wants you to be holy. He first wants you to be holy, and that's where your happiness and your joy will come from. Number three, your salvation is secure. We now live in the victory of Christ. Stop fighting battles he has already claimed. You are going to screw up even after you give your life to Christ because this side of heaven, we're all still sinners and we're saved by what? Grace. We're sinners saved by grace till we get to be glorified and be with God one day in his presence. But until that day comes, whether he comes back or you die, hopefully not for a while, I mean, he can come back anytime, but I don't want you to die like in front of me. That's what I'm trying to say. Don't hear me and say, well, Jesus has the victory. I don't need to worry about these bills. Jesus has the victory. I don't need to worry about this person in my life. I can ride them off, right? That's where we get back to the whole charismatic side of things and the name it and claim it because Jesus has the victory. Then all of a sudden, give me $34 a month so I can buy another plane to go evangelize Africa. No, what I'm saying in this is that a lot of you in this room are still working to try and earn that love and forgiveness that God so freely offered. You guys, are, you guys are struggling to just say, if my faith was only good enough, I wouldn't feel this way about myself. If only I had a faith like so-and-so, then I wouldn't be struggling with this repeat sin that I just keep getting tripped up by. If I just had this great faith, in the most loving way possible, and in an R.C. Sproul type of quote is just shut up. Shut up and remember who God is. Remember what Christ has done and who he is to us. He is Lord and Savior. He is not genie. He is Lord and Savior. That is the beauty. He's won your salvation for you. He's conquered sin and death. He offers eternal life. It's in him and having a relationship with him that genuine faith will then be produced and life will start to look a little bit more with a trajectory and not just scattered across. That, I pray, can be a be at least a, a better rendition of David and Goliath's historical account for you than what you see on social media today. What you see preached at conferences today. 
get to know Jesus Christ. Stop trying to be the main character and let the main character wreck your heart and give you a new one. Because you are a sinner incapable of saving yourself. It is by the blood of Christ Jesus and the victory that he has over sin and death that you can be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this night. Thank you for every single person you've brought into this room. God, no one is here by accident. And I know that sounds like a cliche thing to say. A lot of people say it, but God, it's so true. Just the fact that we're sitting here collectively praying, praying and listening to your word is is just showing that we trust in your sovereignty. And yet you call us to act. You call us to be, be that person that's steadfast in our genuine faith. That is, that is blown away when you are defied, not going, oh, well, hopefully someone steps up. God, let us be so in Christ Jesus that we don't see anything around us, but we're constantly just looking up at you. God, if there's one person in this room tonight who has now heard the reality of who Christ Jesus is and what he came to do by living a sinless life, shedding all of his blood on the cross and paying the price of our sins, then rising again to conquer sin and death. God, if that's a message someone in here has heard for the first time or has been open to for the first time, I pray they don't leave here without talking about it. God, challenge us at the tables. Challenge us around these questions and help us to see that it's not this battle and this this building up of a great faith, but it's this reality of having a genuine faith and a genuine relationship with who you are. God, we love you so much. And we pray this in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. All right, like I said, and I always say every week, Sit at a table where you might not know some people. Get to know some new perspectives. Uh, Try to fill out some tables where I see not as many people. (laughs) Questions are back there. Pens are back there. Um, We'll go for a little longer, and then we'll close out the night. I'm glad you're here, buddy. When's the sermon start? Hey, buddy. How's it going, man? I missed the 